The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Roland Phillips, whose new book tells the story of Mathilde Carré, one of the most complex and interesting spies of the Second World War. It's called Victoire, a wartime story of resistance, collaboration and betrayal. Roland, welcome. Can you tell me... What attracted you? What, what particularly stands out about Mathilde Carré's story among all the many SOE and espionage stories of the war? Well, uh, what I wanted to do was I've always been fascinated by double agents, those people who have the ability to persuade one side that they're working for them and where in fact they're working for another side. And I was also thinking about how our view of the war is... It's very black and white, really. British, good, Germans, bad on the whole. So what got me interested in the notion of finding someone in France, which, of course, had a very different uh, war occupied France, the north of France, because often to collaborate, that filthy word, was the only way to survive. So I was interested in how people tempered their war between the occupation and their patriotism. So the coming together of double agents and occupied France. And I, in fact, came across Mathilde Carré because I was reading the files in the National Archives pertaining to Roman Chernowski, her partner in the network they founded, Antarallier, in France, which we'll talk about. And he came to Britain and became a double agent. One of the key overlord double agents was known as Agent Brutus. And I was reading his file in the National Archives and suddenly came across this extraordinary critique of a memoir written by someone who was clearly in England. And he was saying, yes, this happened, that happened. She's not given me enough credit. So I I then thought, what is this memoir he's reading and that was my introduction to Mathilde Carré who fitted the bill perfectly as someone who in working for both sides thought she was doing the right thing was certainly doing the right thing to survive and that was where it all came from. Yes you do make the point early in the book that collaboration now is a really charged word Mm. but in 1941 it was not so much, was it? I mean, there was a sort of mainstream or large body of opinion that said, you know, with Pétain, collaboration is, is the best way to ensure France's survival as a great power. It's Absolutely. And, and Pétain said at the time of the armistice with Germany in July 1940, he said, we have to collaborate, as you say, for the state to survive. And that was the, the basis of Vichy France. But I think... Increasingly, as I read about collaborators and so on, in many, many cases, I mean, you couldn't put food on your table. You would lose your job unless you at least paid lip service to the occupying power, Germany. And so is collaboration in that way a bad thing to feed your family? 
in many cases, of course, and, and their betrayals involved in Mathilde's story, which are inevitably a bad thing. But just in order to keep your country going and your hope of surviving the war and feeding your family, I think collaboration has had, certainly in the early part of the war, got a, a worse rap than, than in the period of the war I was writing about, which Mathilde left France in February 1942, so in very much in the early stages. Mathilde's character, she seems to have been rather a kind of dreamy and anxious and rather aimless young woman before war broke out. She was. Uh, she was uh, had what we would now see as a rather neglected childhood. She didn't have any ambition. She got married very young. She became a teacher in French Algeria really to get away from France and home. And she developed a, a desperate need to, to love, really, and she couldn't have children with her husband. And when war broke out, she was absolutely aimless. She was lost. She decided that her husband was no good because he went to Syria rather than fought to defend France. And the beginning of the war brought her spirit to life, gave her motivation. She became a nurse, incredibly brave nurse throughout. Of the 80 nurses in her intake, only three were still working by the end of the fall of France. She fell in love with a man she was nursing. She became pregnant by him. And suddenly she was alive. She thrilled to danger. She told stories of going into the woods where, where the Stukas were strafing French people and how exciting that was. I mean, it, it really was a, a turning round of her. I think she, she, had, um, she was depressive and the war gave her her spirit back. So by the fall of France, she was pregnant. She was excited by that. She had her lover... And then everything fell apart. She lost the baby. Her lover went back to the war. And she was about to commit suicide when this spirit reasserted. She was about to jump into the River Garonne in Toulouse when this spirit reasserted itself. And she said to herself, if I'm going to die, I must at least die in the cause of France. She had this terrific surge of patriotism that determined her to be useful in the war. She had no idea how, and quite by chance, a few nights later, she met in the restaurant this energetic, green-eyed, badly, um, he had terrible teeth, Pole, called Roman Chernowski, though he gave a false name, who asked her to teach him French. Uh, they became lovers, and eventually he disclosed to her that he had this vision of an intelligence network that was completely radical. Pockets of cells right round the country, round occupied France, each cell not knowing where anyone above the leader of that cell. And he would report back, with her help, to the Allies, to London, the entire German order of battle within France. And they set this network up incredibly quickly in a matter of days in November 1940. And our spies, the British spies, reported that this was our only source of intelligence from occupied France. It was an amazing achievement they, they pulled off. So she went from 
despair, to patriotism, to this lucky break, to running this vast network. It, it was an extraordinary. At which point she was La Chatte. You know, I don't see... You... At which point she beca- became La Chatte, exactly, because she stealthily paced around Paris emptying the so-called post boxes they set up where the agents would leave their reports. And she walked soundlessly but could scratch, as Roman said. Now, her relationship with Roman, I mean, I don't want to trivialise it by bringing it all down to, you know, sexual relationships, but there were an awful lot of them. It sort of stops rather abruptly and suddenly he has one or two or three other mistresses on the go. Yes, I think uh, Roman obviously... Uh, and liked having mistresses and he did they did they were as I just said they were lovers but when they set up when the network started they decided they had to live together like brother and sister this would confuse things didn't stop Mathilde Lachat being extremely jealous of the uh, other mistresses and one in particular who a year on the jealousy uh, in their relationship led to part of the downfall of the network. She was a person who wore her emotions on the outside, Mathilde. I think you would know if you were not in favour with her. But it was that passion that I think made her a great spy. I mean, she was fearless. I mean, fearless to the point of foolhardiness. She once went to Brest to report on the British bombing, so the the RAF could know if the, how their aim was going and was so filled with the spirit of what she read about the bravery of Londoners and the Blitz that she went round breast speaking with a British accent, which inevitably meant by the time she got back to the Gardu Nor there was a Gestapo officer waiting for her. But not only did she laugh off the British accent, but she ended up having dinner with this man later that night discovered he was half Irish and and so you know she was extraordinary she threw herself into every aspect of everything she did but the great turning point in what you call a a three-act tragedy maybe the first turning point is the downfall of Interallier their their spying network yes because that happened very fast didn't it it happened very fast and as I suspect nearly always with these catastrophes, completely unexpectedly. By that time, the network had at any point between 150 and 250 agents. I mean, it was a vast organisation that she did the bureaucracy of with um, consummately. And they collapsed because a drunken docker in Brittany was heard talking to a Luftwaffe officer and he he said very odd I was in the air raid shelter the other night and this woman kept asking me about what was on the ships and how much oil was coming in and and from that the Luftwaffe officer told the local Abwehr who reported it to Paris this is now November 41 the agency's been the network's been going a year and normally the Abwehr in Paris were notoriously idle, but they'd been getting some stick from Berlin for not bringing in any spies. So they sent someone to investigate this peculiar claim from a bar. And quite by chance, that man went into the local military police station and said, does anyone here speak French? And out came this corporal called Hugo Bleicher, 
who became one of the great spy hunters in France as a result of this chance request for a translator. And it was he who quite quickly tracked from the docker to the head of that network back to Paris and within a few days had found Roman Chernowski and Mathilde Carré. Yes, it, it took about three days to, for him to unpick it. He was brilliant, Bleicher, and we heard a lot more about him as the war went on. Yes, now Bleicher, he's got Mathilde. I don't want to issue too many spoilers in the course of this conversation, mm. but I think we probably need to at least spoil this aspect of it. He turns her, doesn't he? How does he do that? He does turn her. Uh, he, he arrests her. He sends her to this appalling prison, La Sante. At this point in the war, they've just started shooting resistors. And the week before Mathilde is arrested, eight resistors have been shot in La Sante. And Bleicher says, either you work for me or you'll die. And Mathilde spends a night in prison. And next day, he, he quite cleverly gives her... A slap-up breakfast with real coffee and a croissant, which, and real coffee is not something she's tasted for a year. And faced with collaboration or death, she decides on collaboration. And when I read about similar age and a lot of anti-alia agents, many of them chose at that point to work with the Germans rather than be imprisoned and, as they thought, killed. I mean... Who knows if he would have carried out his threat? Probably not, because I don't think he believed in executing people. He believed in turning. In fact, I believe he invented the whole notion of turning uh, uh, French agents into double agents, and he started with Mathilde. And considering he was completely untrained, Hugo Bleicher, he was sort of, he was brilliant. I mean, within, he managed to arrest the top people, persuade Mathilde to work with him, and then get transmitting on the radio that she'd escaped. So she, so the, we had no idea in Britain that she had been... We knew she, the network had been blown up, but we thought she was still transmitting on our behalf. So she was ideal for disinformation. Now, that's one of the peculiar things in this, and I'm curious to your take on it, is that, on the one hand, she's obviously terrified she's being driven by events you know and yet from within a few hours of being told you know you're going to collaborate we're going to die she's starting to arrange meetings and you know help to roll up the network and at least as you describe it and as I guess Bleicher has recorded she's absolute shows absolute sort of perfect actress sans foie you know she doesn't give anything away when she meets no. her confederates or former confederates and lures them in why is that no. how is that well i think it's two things i i think first of all she was completely numb i mean this her the passion with which she'd gone into the network and run it for a year and suddenly everything's kicked away she's in shock she's completely benumbed but i also think she has gone into a sort of state of catatonia where she's just going along she thinks this is my new life my new work and and it is a you're real right it's a very perplexing point afterwards she justified it 
by saying she was always intending to come back on side, which indeed she was, but I don't believe in those first days, had thought that through. But I think she was just completely in a state of shock and going through the motions of filling her appointments. But they were two or three days of real horror, I think, as agent after agent was... She met them in the bars they'd arranged to meet in and they'd be the Gestapo would rush in behind and take them away. I mean, it's a really shattering time, which she just puts one foot in front of the other and uh, there's none of the... I mean, the lightness and the joy with which she describes her life up until then and now it's just a sort of plodding series of, of betrayals. And she's sleeping with Blacker as well. And on that first day when she's out of prison, Bleicher seduces, well, more or less rapes her. I mean, he he goes to her room and undresses and they sleep together and she's completely wound in. But again, there's none of the... Um, she's always saying, I'm only gaining their trust, I'm only gaining their trust, before she, she can seize her opportunity to, to turn again. Do you think she's um, all along got this long game in mind? No, I don't. I think she's putting one foot in front of the other. I think she justified it later by saying it was a long game. And indeed, again, without wanting to put in too many spoilers, her next act was one of extraordinary courage yet again on the, on the side of right. But one of the things I wanted to do was, well, really ask the question of what would any of us do in this situation, would we, yes, betray people, we could say, and they certainly would have been caught anyway because they had all the papers of the network, or would we suffer the camps, possibly death, rather than go through that? I mean, it's a question I couldn't answer as to what I would do in this situation. It would strike a lot of people as strange and surprising the length of the leash that Bleicher kind of puts her on. Absolutely. You know, her ability to turn into a triple agent, you know, it's, it's facilitated by Bleicher. Basically, he sort of lets her wander around, he lets her live independently, even lets her, you know, later on go to the UK. Why, why on earth was that? Had, he, had she fooled him? I think it, Bleicher was extraordinarily naive. As I say, he was a military policeman, very lowly in rank. And he also didn't really believe in the the whole Nazi project, certainly not the Nazi methods of brutality and so on, which is why I think he probably wouldn't have had her executed in the end. But he, this was his first job in intelligence, and he was making it up as he goes along, which was brilliant in terms of turning her, seeing the opportunity and turning her, which no one else in the Abwehr, the German intelligence outfit, seems to have thought of. But this extraordinary leash was he he so believed, possibly correctly, that she was on his side that he just didn't take any of the normal precautions that any trained spy would have taken. And do you think, without too many spoilers, you could talk about the the sort of next phase? Because she's put, you know, it is to some extent, and I, you know, this may seem a sort of patriarchal construction to put on it, but she moves from Roman, who's one man who she's absolutely with, then Bleicher, and then there's this third guy, this Brit. Yes. Uh, he's a, fr- he's a Frenchman Sorry, French, working Frenchman, for the Brits. Yeah. French resistance. Um, yes. 
I think they, the fact that they were all three men is a sign of the times. I think what she was responding to was they were all passionate about their causes. Roman, no question, he had this vision. I mean, he was, it was an epiphany for him, Andrew Allier. Bleicher, although making it up as he goes, went along, was, as I say, brilliant. And then the third person who offered her the hope of salvation was so clearly a, a patriotic Frenchman that that reignited her patriotism and indeed her courage. So what happened was the chap called Pierre de Vomcourt, who was working for SOE, as I say, a totally patriotic Frenchman, had been dropped back into France really to found the resistance, to assess the number of followers. He could count on 10,000. We actually added it up in, in SOE in London to be 25,000 followers. And this was the only hope of France. I mean, militarily, we absolutely weren't ready to do anything. So we had to inspire resistance. And Churchill, of course, was very excited about resistance and SOE setting Europe ablaze and all that. And so de Vomcourt was the pioneer of the resistance, was dropped back. He kept losing his radio operators, were, were captured and killed. And he heard through a friendly... So solid was the double-cross Bleicher had perpetrated that even a, a sort of leading link man in Paris, when de Vomcourt went to him and said, I've got to get messages back to London, indeed myself back to London. He said, go to La Chatte, her radio is still working, she's kept it safe. So they had no idea at all she'd been turned. So he went to her, Bleicher was thrilled. He now not only had the best intelligence network under his thumb, but he was about to get the whole of the, the yet-be-born resistance. So he told Mathilde to play along with this. And so... Mathilde was now in touch with with the good guys again and de Vomcourt rumbled her as as working for the Germans because she she was producing identity cards that were completely perfect, whereas normal forged identity cards would be very smudged and her fakes weren't fake enough. <laughs> exactly. And he suddenly ride through that and, and because there was something, you know, funny messages going back that he, he didn't... Uh, things weren't happening as they were meant to. And he said to her, so for the second time in three months, he said to her, you're working the other side and I should kill you, at which point she confessed everything. And then began, I think, the most extraordinary period of her life because de Vomcourt couldn't kill her because that would have been up with him because he obviously been spotted and that would have been the end of the resistance so he had to trust her in turn to work as a triple agent and above all she had to keep her cool while working as a triple agent while still living with Bleicher and and get de Vomcourt out of the country so it's an extraordinary high wire act and for a woman who was given to not hiding her feelings it was when I started on this period, I thought, my God, how is she going to manage to suppress this? But she does, and she does it brilliantly, working very much for de Vomcourt, who who is sending messages privately through Vichy France saying, for God's sake, don't question her, because um, if she goes, everything collapses. So 
there's this period in early 42 where she is the first triple agent of the war. And again, Bleicher's naivety plays in her favour at this point. How much do you feel in her story? Because she's obviously got aspects of extraordinary self-possession and bravery and control. I mean, how much do you feel her trajectory is something that she's got agency over? And how much is she just playing the cards she's dealt, you know, one after the other? I think she is very much at the mercy of events. But I think that is the nature of certainly being a woman in the role she'd taken on, that uh, she couldn't influence events. But I think what goes along with that is the way she's able to seize the right thing to do when it is the right thing to do. And I think, I mean, she could have, at the the Vomcor moment, she could easily have fled. He would have been arrested. That would have been the end of everything. But she saw this was the right moment to do the right thing and then played her cards with aplomb. So I think she was absolutely swept along by the currents of the war, which were pretty circular at that point. I mean, a lot of eddying, but picked her moment to let her true character come through. What do you think all this did to her psychologically in the long run? Well, in the long run, it exhausted her. I mean, I think there's a a lot that happens between the period we're talking about and the end of the war and indeed the war's aftermath. But she, in the end, she gave up on the world. I mean, I think she couldn't take the buffeting of events and perhaps trying to steer her course through them. And it shattered her. I'm wondering, looking back, I mean, how... It's such a tricky and complex story because in certain lights she's a hero, in other lights she has blood on her hands. You know, she's betrayed people, some of whom lost their lives as a result. Which side of it do you come down on? I mean, how do you feel about her? And does that align with how history, if you like, has viewed her, particularly in France? Uh... The France has viewed her as incredibly hostile, and indeed she went through the judicial system in France after the war and was sentenced to death. And that's a, an open and shut case. Yes, she betrayed people. Yes, she was had to be sentenced to death. But I think one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is show how her story isn't a black and white one. Yes, she did wrong. But yes, she did an awful lot of right as well. I mean, one might say she saved many lives. Uh, Certainly, she was influential in the founding of the the resistance. I think she did right and wrong. But I think why I chose her, one of the reasons I chose her, apart from the sheer excitement of her story, is that I think I wanted to hold up someone who could exemplify the complexity of working within an occupied country and being at the mercy of events. Did she, how long did she live? Was there a, a long aftermath to this story? Uh, I mean, we the, should say uh, she, her, sentence, her death sentence was not carried out. Was, was, was not carried out in the end. Uh, she had a very brilliant lawyer who was a resistance fighter himself who wrote a wonderful, remarkable letter to the president of France pointing out all the good she'd done in life and how being a double agent was 
meant impossible choices and so on. So her death sentence was commuted and turned into life imprisonment. When she was in prison, she got very, very religious. And I think it's as if I felt that that turning to religion was a sort of... She tried the world of people and been knocked about by it, been sentenced to death, been roundly condemned. And she thought she'd done good as well. And I think she just gave up on life and turned to religion. She became a recluse, so much so that it was thought until now that she died in the 1970s after a release from prison and retreat from life. She never saw anybody. Uh, but I found her, or my researcher found her, death certificate, and she died in 2007. So nobody had even heard from her for 30 years at all. So I think she just completely... She had this two-year period of of such high emotion and action and fighting for betrayal and courage that I think she was just worn out by by the world and thought I must aim for a different, higher world. Well, it's an extraordinary story. Roland Phillips, thanks very much indeed. Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin.